Good morning and welcome to the next in our wonderful shows about holistic wholeness. You're talking to Barbara and Dawn. Hello. Hello Dawn. And you know, one of the shows we, we've, we, we've talked about in the past and we really would like to focus on a little bit more uh, in today's show is the fact that we often consider wealth to being money and to being finance. And April in the UK signals the end of one tax year and the start of the next tax year. But finances, when we're talking about wealth in relation to holistic wholeness, is just one definition of what it means to be wealthy. So what we're going to discuss a little bit more today is the larger meaning of that word wealth and hopefully we'll be able to in our normal manner have a stimulating conversation that will help you understand how you can look at your own wealth now as always we've done a wheel and our wheel covers things like the financial aspects the money the emotional wealth that we all have the spiritual side the health because you know without our health we really can't be wealthy our freedom, Dawn's favorite topic of decluttering, debt management, abundance, feelings and energy, physical fitness, mental fitness, and positivity. So, Dawn, yes. what do you think wealth actually means? Yeah, well, it's an interesting subject, and it's the reason why we're, we're discussing it again. Um, and I've come up with various definitions and little stories I'd like to share with you, Barbara. So despite the fact that the most common definition of, as you say, of wealth is to do with financial status, there are, in fact, many, many other definitions of wealth other than focusing on money. Um, so... As you say, we can be wealthy in terms of our health um, or our attitude or our peace of mind and still be really quite poor. And I think uh, we only have to look at um, less developed countries who don't have all the things that we have in the Western world, you know, the technology. Uh, I'm thinking iPhones, iPads, computers. You know, if you think about people in the Amazon when there are documentaries, they have very, very little, and yet they're smiling, they're happy people. So evidently, being wealthy has got very little to do with money and material things. So I believe you can have emotional wealth, and as a Buddhist, um, I think somebody who enjoys a greater peace of mind is actually a very wealthy person. And uh, for, for people who practice meditation and Buddhism, obviously getting that greater peace of mind where it's uncluttered and you're focusing on the now, they would probably consider themselves to be really quite wealthy, grounded people. And Paul McKellar, uh, I remember um, going to one of his uh, conferences and, or, or speeches, and he gave a, an interesting little uh, short story, which I quite liked. And he said he knows plenty of uber rich men who can afford, you know, the, the most luxurious beds. But if they don't have peace of mind, they don't get a good night's sleep. Mm. And yet a poor man, you know, who might be sleeping on a 
a rubbish mattress on the on the floor is all he can afford but he's got peace of mind sleeps like a king so who's the wealthiest so i thought that was one really interesting scenario and there's another quote that we've used before dawn yeah. really um, supports what you're saying, which is happiness comes from spiritual wealth yes. and not from material wealth. Yeah. Now you, can re you can replace that word spiritual with, with any other word, you know, with uh, financial, sorry, with emotional wealth, with family wealth, with health. Yeah. And there's also that fabulous quote um, about people who spend their health to gain their wealth mm -hmm. and then have to spend the wealth to gain their health. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a health perspective, I think that's one of the best and most important quotes that people can take away. Um, very important. I, but I think what we're talking about here is that every aspect of your life, it, mm. you can select to be wealthy in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, personally, apart from the health aspect, I also think wealth is about financial freedom. You know, absolutely, absolutely you know, having even very little money. We, we see lots of books uh, on Amazon today um, and stories in the press about people who have decluttered their lives, sold their lives on eBay um, and gone around the world without a penny. And, um, you know, set up a, a whole new life and they have this huge sense of freedom now what price can you put on that being free to do as you please when you please and there's a, a little story about a fisherman mm -hmm. uh, which i quite like and I, I i probably don't remember the whole thing but it goes something along the lines of uh, a, a, a rich american entrepreneur goes on holiday to de-stress and he hires this fisherman and says take me out fishing for the day and uh, he said, you know, this is a wonderful life. I've had such a good day. And you are such a good fisherman. You really, you know, should concentrate on buying a fleet of um, boats and having a team of fishermen take people like me um, out to de-stress and you would earn so much money. And the fisherman says, yes, but what would I do with this money? And he said, well, you'd do what, what I'm doing now. He said, but I'm already doing it. I don't need to, you know, have a loan to buy boats, to hire people, to manage them. I'm quite happy just doing it just me with just my boat. I'm living the dream now. And it was a real sort of wake up call for the, for the entrepreneur that actually big isn't always better. Absolutely. And there's also those stories, um, which I know we've both read about, um, the cities and like, you know, the city of London and, and all these financial centers where these people work silly hours yeah, and they earn what I would consider to be silly money. I mean, you're talking about people who are going to earn one, two, maybe million pounds a, a year yeah. and they collect this money, but they're working so many hours, they don't spend it. So they mm -hmm. accumulate it and they invest it and they accumulate a bit more. And then at some point they go, I've had enough. And mm -hmm. um, I was working with somebody, um, oh, probably 15 years ago now, who was in that position. Mm. And they'd come to me and they'd said, Barbara, we just need to get out of London. We actually need to just get away. Mm. And it wasn't so much about 
the material side of, of their lives because they had everything they needed. They, they paid the house off, you know, which was worth several million pounds. They had the top range vehicles that they, they dreamt that they could have. Yeah. They had a young family and it was actually that young family that had made them go, we need to do something. Mm-hmm. And this is a, this is a couple who could walk into any shop in London or anywhere in the world, you know, get on a jet and just go any restaurant you wanted and just pay the bill out of their current account. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about people who, who didn't have to worry about money. Yeah. Um, and they, they, we, we worked, I worked with the couple for, for a long time and we identified what they wanted mm. and what they wanted was not materialistic. They'd realized that wealth wasn't money, mm-hmm. but they didn't know what it was. Mm. And that was the interesting exercise because we had to go through a number of things mm. and eventually, and I mean, yes, they were in a fantastic position. They bought a small holding mm. and they, it took them four or five years. It wasn't something that happened overnight, mm. but they made the decision to turn this small holding into their life. Mm-hmm. So they had to become self-sufficient. Yeah. They couldn't rely on this money sitting in the bank. They wanted their children to understand mm. what it meant to dig up carrots or potatoes or, mm. you know, look after animals or, or, but in a way that only the family benefited. They didn't want to have a farm and start to sell. Yeah. And they went on to, um, to develop that and to, grow, and to grow it up. And they started to barter their excess vegetables. Mm. And, you know, this is a couple who've realized that the wealth of life has come from sticking their hands in the ground. Yes, yeah. From living in a small house, having gone from a you know huge property in London, yeah. um, because they would because having been driven after money for so long, mm-hmm. they realised that money wasn't everything. Yeah. Well, there's that lovely uh, quote about being rich is having money, being wealthy is having time. Absolutely. And- People who live in the country, you and I know this, you know, we've, we've left the corporate world. Uh, we have our own small holdings. We've got our allotments, our polytunnels, our animals. Um, we're growing our vegetables. Yeah. It gives you a completely different sense of what it means to be wealthy. Um, you know, being in nature, being grounded. You cannot put a price on being able to make your smoothie or your coffee and sit on your terrace and look at the hills, hear the birds, watch your dogs play. Mm. That is priceless. And, you know, I think you have to get to a certain age to appreciate it, though. I don't know if I would have appreciated this, Barbara, if I hadn't gone through 20 years working up the corporate ladder and earning the money. I don't know if I had being brought up this way, whether I would have craved then the city life and earning the money. Um, so I think may- maybe having gone through that, I just appreciate this more. I don't know. Well, you know, that, that's a really interesting question. And um, it comes down to something that you and I talk a lot about. Um, and that's the corporate life we've had. Mm-hmm. And the careers we've chosen in it and why we've chosen those careers. 
You know, it actually raises, um, reminds me of one of those questions that some of our listeners have raised mm-hmm. about the balance between their attitude to money and their success or their satisfaction at work. Mm. And I think we are brought up, and, and maybe the world's beginning to change, Dawn, but I think we are brought up with this feeling that we have to be successful at work. And to prove that success, we have to be earning top dollar. Mm. So we move from job to job because the dollars move. Yeah, there's no, um, there's no sense of loyalty staying with the same company anymore. People know to make the money, they have to move every 18 months and sell their skills because you know, there's, there's very little reward to stay where you are for 30 years now. But, but is there? Because if I go back in my own personal career and I look at some of the jobs I've had, mm. there was fantastic wealth in that career satisfaction. Yeah. And I was being motivated to move for the finance. Yeah, yeah. Because I came down to the fact that, you know, you move to a bigger house, you've got a bigger mortgage, you've got more rates to pay, your, your electricity bill gets higher, your gas bill gets higher. Yeah. And one of the things that I've done, and, and I, I do recommend this for everybody, and I do this often with small business owners, but actually I do recommend this with everybody, is write down your monthly outgoings. Mm. And don't forget that some of those monthly outgoings are actually only paid once a year, like insurance. And you need to take that and divide it by 12 because it's got to be considered as a monthly outgoing. And work out what money you need. Because often we're driven to get more money to buy something more materialistic, a better holiday, a bigger car, you know, whatever, a better, a bigger house. Mm-hmm. But do we need to drive that, you know, happiness through the materialistic wealth? Mm, the keeping up with the Joneses. Absolutely. Or, or should we look at and start to be, and you and I are doing this, driving our happiness and our wealth through the other areas of our lives? Mm. Mm. Actually, if you and I were to be frankly honest, the financial wealth is, is no longer important. Mm. As long as we have enough money to pay the bills, exactly, we're not chasing the finance anymore, whereas both of us have done that. And to be honest, I did enjoy it at the time. Yes. But I'm, I'm, I'm now questioning whether I enjoyed the moving yeah. and whether I could have stayed longer in companies yeah. if I'd realised there was a wealth in my job satisfaction. Mm. Yeah, because the moving scenario um, on a regular basis brings up another scenario, which I think we're seeing more and more is the stress that people are going through about perhaps, well, a couple of things. There's the attitude towards money. Am I worth this kind of salary? Yeah. uh, but also the feelings of being fraudulent are very, very prevalent at the moment in terms, and they have been for years. But people, you know, might think that I'm worth, I don't know, say 50000 but going for a job at 75000 if they got it, the stress they're under because they feel fraudulent that paying paid too much really comes down to their attitudes uh, to money. Now, whether they're their own attitudes or learnt attitudes, you know, is another thing. But 
increased stress, increased suicide. Um, and increased pressures, doing. Yeah. Because yeah. with that extra income stream comes the assumed expectation that you have to do more. Yes. Yeah. So it's not only a, a mental stress issue, it's actually also a physical stress issue. Yeah, which is why people don't sleep so well. Insomnia has never been so high, which is why depression and mental health has never been so high an issue. Yeah. And now it's, it's becoming the norm rather than the exception. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to somebody the other day, interesting enough, it was just one of those conversations you have, mm. about go back to your parents' or grandparents' generations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, parents and grandparents lived through the wars. Yeah. Um, they didn't have this pressure about must have more material. Mm -hmm. They were looking for the wealth in health. They were looking for the wealth in staying alive. They were looking for the wealth in family emotions and connections and friends. and community. Yeah, and you're right, in that community. And what's happened in those intervening years that's driven us to such a point where we only see wealth as being money, financial, mm. and we can't see wealth as being job satisfaction. Yeah. I mean, that whole scenario you've just described is why, despite the austerity, the lack of food, uh, the lack of coupons for clothing and all sorts of things people still say they were the good old times they there was actually fun times they're the good old days yeah the street parties with yeah the community yeah. was so so great and we don't have this i mean i've got uh, somebody i'm working with at the moment who says you know they've lived in this house um for i think five years and They've had four neighbors come and go. Presumably, you know, they've changed their job, they've moved on, yeah. hasn't known any of them. Yeah. Not even to say hello to. She finds that really shocking. She's a foreign foreigner, you know, yeah. living, she's an expat living in the UK. Um, but she said, there's no community. She's really shocked that people don't even have the time to give you the time of day to say hello. We're all on this treadmill. So when you look at the treadmill people are on today, you can understand why. Some people would say the good old days yeah. because in some ways they really were. I, I, it brings me back to, to something that's just come back to mind. I remember when I first started commuting to London mm. um, in the mid-late 80s and I'd just moved down to Kent and I walked down onto the platform for the station and I was in my, what, late 20s or something like that. Um, and there was this, this group of gentlemen who were probably in their 50s maybe 60s who obviously worked in the in the center of in the city of london mm -hmm. and they were standing there and they were chatting and they all had their coffee and they were talking around and they looked one of them looked at me and he said uh, new to the train so i said yes never done this one before used to come in from berkshire and he said don't worry come and sit with us mm. and he said but you haven't got coffee and i said no no i'm no, just trying to work out where things are and he said don't worry, took my hand and he took me over here and he said, this young lady needs her coffee for the morning. How do you take it? Um, and he forked out the pound. He just, he just took it out of his pocket and paid for it. I mean, it, it, I didn't know who he was, nothing. Uh, and 
I had just moved into my very first house that I'd bought and I didn't know my neighbours, just like you're describing. I didn't know anybody. And here's this guy out of the blue. And then he said, come. He said, come and sit with us. You don't want to sit up in front of the train. It gets too crowded when you get to Seven Oaks. Come and sit down here. Yeah. And we, he took me down to the bottom and he said, okay. And we chatted away and he asked me where I came from and explained who they were and what they did and where they lived. And most of them had small holdings. Uh -huh. um, but they lived in the city of London and two of them owned businesses. So they had to go in three, four times a week and, you know, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Got the whole story. But I was brought into this train community. Yeah. And then uh, and I never saw them in, in, in town because they lived out of town. But, you know, uh -huh. I was in this, this community. And then he said to me, 10 minutes outside Charing Cross, he said, what train do you catch in the evenings? So I said, oh, I don't know. I haven't worked that one out yet. And he said, okay, we are generally on the 10 past six, but we're in the buffet car because we always have our gin and tonics. Mm. So I got down to Charing Cross for the 10 past six, went to the buffet car. The three of them are standing there with mm. a few others. And they said, come on, Barbara, come in. We've got your gin and tonic ready for you. Mm. Well, one or not, didn't matter. Um, I then eventually trained them that I didn't like gin and tonic at 10 past six. I'd have a tonic because I still had to drive home. Mm. Um, but it was it was this fabulous brought into this community and it was only for the hour and ten or something the train journey was for but I felt wanted looked after and yet I go back to the house yeah and I didn't know my neighbors that just proves how many communities we can belong to in exactly. any, any given day yeah. you know a traveling community I mean I've never really thought or heard of something yeah. like that uh, the community at home, your your family community, your work community, and when we think of you know all the work that and the research that is being done on, and I can never say this word, centenarians, people who live to a hundred plus, you know, <laughs> we look at the blue zones as they are uh, called. Um, there's five or six. So there's one in Japan, uh, one in Pakistan, uh, Sardinia, one in Ind Indonesia. You know, there's a there's a couple. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the, the uh, common denominators, apart from the usual things that you'd expect, like diet and a sense of purpose, one of them is belonging to a community, feeling yeah. valued. And that is wealthy. It's unbelievably wealthy, especially when, like me, you were, you know, you suddenly gone to a new town yeah. from the UK. So I'm now living in a, in a, in a new town. I've mm. got a few friends there. Uh, which is why I've moved there. And, and now I'm, you know, and I'm suddenly being drawn in. Mm. And it was incredible how much I found out that I would never have known about Kent. Yeah, yeah. Just from conversations. And I used to, I mean, you have this vision of people getting on a trip commuter train and sitting behind their newspapers. Yeah. And um, one of the jobs I had was that I had to read the Financial Times on the train before I got to work. Mm -hmm because I had to know what was going on in the financial markets. And it was great because I sat there and I went, guys, this is part of my job. And one mm -hmm. of the guys said, we'll tell you what's happened. Because obviously they were in the city, they were in the know, they knew what was going on. So mm -hmm. I used to get into work and mm -hmm. say to me, okay, Barbara, what's happening in the city? You know, what should we be looking after? What should we be looking at? What should we be investing in? And I'd be giving them all this information. And it's like, yeah, and where is it in the FT? Don't know, I haven't read it yet. Mm. And my boss, who was the director of, of a very, very large uh, blue chip organization, said, 
how are you finding out? And I said, it's just conversation on the train. Yeah, yeah. And he said, okay. He said, but I still need you to read the FT. And I said, I'll do it at coffee break. That's um, just reminded me of uh, a community story that, I, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but you know, I've just toured uh, Spain and we did our last show from uh, me being in a campsite in Spain. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some campsites, there was a sense of community. Um, we could see that the Dutch, maybe they had been going there and they were meeting year after year and had become friends. And we didn't really experience that ourselves until we got to um, Malaga and, um, we pulled into this campsite and there wasn't a slot that we wanted because we wanted to be in the sun. Yeah, um, yeah. Unlike the Spanish who always like the shade. Um, so we were waiting for somebody to vacate at 12 o'clock and the next um, uh, camp um, caravan on the other side of the pitch was English. And they said, they're leaving at 12. We'll put a chair on that slot and save the space for you. So go back to the office and say, this is the one you watched because I can tell you, apart from ours, this is the best slot for the sun. So immediately we felt adopted. And you kind of have this feeling like, oh, I don't want somebody so in my face. I can't have any free time. But luckily they were a lovely couple. And uh, we got our slot. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm going to the new shop on site. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll come with you if you don't mind. We got there and she said, oh, you haven't got any tomatoes. I want tomatoes. And luckily I had tomatoes in the fridge. And I said, oh, well, I've got tomatoes. How many do you need? And she said three. So I said, okay. So we went back to my caravan. She got her three uh, tomatoes. And the next day she said, I'm going shopping. Would you like to come? So we're in a camper van. So it's not so mobile for us once we've pitched up yeah. and have the car. So we got in the car and she took me to the supermarket and I did a big shop. So I felt that she had adopted me and we, we ended up staying three weeks and she introduced us to people. She, you know, said, come to the disco, come to the quiz, the, there's a, a book and DVD swap. So that campsite, there was a real sense of community, uh, not just between individual cultures like we had experienced in other sites where the Dutch stuck to the Dutch. Yeah. This multi multinational community. Um, and uh, so much so, we, we, we've booked and we're all meeting up on the 1st of November to come back. So <laughs> communities can pop up immediately like pop-up restaurants you know they can exactly. anywhere um you just have to find that connection and that that was a really lovely experience and you know it's interesting because as we're both talking and and you know this, the topic of the show is wealth obviously and we're mm -hmm. talking about communities i think and i'm thinking back and i'm listening to you and i mean obviously i knew a bit about what what had happened because we talk well between the shows as well yeah and um and I, I've got this vision sitting in my mind of these street parties. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something that I'd obviously experienced as a child growing up in Central Africa, but it was something that I experienced when I first moved to the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the first street party I ever went to was for um, Charles and Di's wedding. Mm -hmm. And we had a street that sort of looped around. So you had two entrances or exits to the street, as you can imagine. And somebody parked a car at one end and somebody parked a car at the other end. And you're probably talking about 50, maybe 55 houses. Mm -hmm. And everybody brought out tables and chairs and mm -hmm. serviettes. And, I mean, nothing matched, but it didn't matter. No, it didn't. 
And out of the blue, we learnt who our neighbours were. We found out who was living next to us and across from us. Mm. But you know, it never happened again. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Those um, royal occasions, jubilee, uh, yeah. weddings, um, and they create these street parties and almost take us back to um, the good old days. Yeah. Um, before we were all too busy to notice each other and too busy earning money and being on this treadmill. Exactly. So when we're thinking about wealth now, mm. and we're thinking about it in relation to the bigger topic, mm. I'm thinking, you know, we always have a wheel of life and we always talk about the wheel of life. And yeah. when we're working with clients, we're working with a wheel of life. I think we should start to ask the question, how does wealth fit into each one of these segments? Yes. Yeah. It's a good, a good point, actually, because if I think about um, one of the quotes uh, that we had earlier about um, your quote, happiness comes from spiritual wealth, not material wealth. Well, you know, when we're on this treadmill, we're earning more money. So I remember it, I did this exactly myself. When I got a new job, we said, okay, we can afford a bigger mortgage. We moved to a bigger house. You're on this, but you're not actually having any more cash because mm. your expenses are more. You have got a bigger house, a bigger mortgage. You perhaps do more entertaining, but at the end of the month, you're not any better off. And quite often, you're worse off. But what also happens, Barbara, and I hear this uh, with clients now, uh, when they talk about their stress, they don't realize that owning more stuff brings more stress. So you have the temporary happiness of, oh, I've got money, what shall I buy? And we know that shopping is retail therapy today, which didn't happen in wartime. No. Um, in, in, in any period of austerity, people were more conscious about health and food and, you know, survival. But today, you know, we've got more money than we know what to do with, even if it's just not real money and they don't own it, you know, and shopping online feels very unreal. You don't know how much you spent at the end of the day shopping on Amazon because no money has exchanged hands, but you've got all this stuff. So it arrives. So the, the happiness is very temporary and then you've got to think, right, I've got to insure it. I've got to look after it. So you get stress from making sure that you keep your possessions safe from being stolen by somebody else. Yes. Yes. Uh, and all of these things that you thought were assets are actually liabilities. Yeah. They're whittling away at your peace of mind. But, you know, it's, it's also interesting because... You and I live in France, and mm. the European inheritance legislation changed last year. Yeah. And our neighbours came over to us the other day and said, could we witness their signatures on their wills? Mm. I had no problems at all. We could do that for them. And it made me suddenly realise that, okay, that's something that we have to look at on a regular basis because yeah. material possessions change. Yeah. And inheritance laws are all about material possessions. Mm. And not, they're not about the being, the spiritual, the, the everything else that you are. And I'm going to smile at this, but it suddenly made me realize that I've got a barn full of stuff, mm -hmm. which, you know, and I know you love decluttering, and I'm sure yeah. we will do that. But it made me 
I was looking through one of these questionnaires that you can get, you know, and it said, um, what do you own? Mm -hmm. Write it down. So what's in the living room? What's in the dining room? What's in the kitchen? You know, and you list it out. What's outside? You know, what vehicles do you own? Do, what, how homes do you own? Do you own second home? Blah, blah, blah. You know, there was this load of questions. And I can remember having to do this when I emigrated out of the UK. You know, this load of questions about what do you own? Write this list out. And I actually, strangely enough, have made this decision to reduce my material wealth mm. by decluttering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by, by just by making the decision, not even by taking the steps, but by making the decision, you increase your energetic wealth. You increase your spiritual wealth. Mm. You increase the freedom wealth. Mm. Because one of the challenges that we have to consider under wealth is all this material stuff that we own and we, you know, we change jobs to get more money, to buy more material, to yeah. move home, to, to do all of this stuff. Yeah. Where's it going to go when we don't want it, when we don't need it, when we're not here to, to have it, to own it? Yeah. Whose burden are we making it? And I think that's the right word as well. Yeah. Uh, because we see it repeatedly on, you know, TV dramas, the, the next of kin, usually the children, they come in. What do they do? They pack it all up and they, they send it to charity. It's just a big chore. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to see that, you know, when I'm looking at European legislation on inheritance, mm -hmm. the children inherit the property. Mm -hmm. France, Portugal, Spain, you know, these countries, that is the inheritance legislation. The rest of what you own, you can leave the way you want to leave, but the children inherit the property. And yet when you drive around these countries, how many properties are derelict? Because the children don't want them. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just the properties they don't want. I mean, um, my mother, bless her, said to me the other day, you know, you've still got that library of books. Who's going to want it? Mm. And we were talking about splitting it out because there's some very important books that I do own and there's some just fiction. Mm -hmm. And who will want them? Who, who, who wants that book wealth that I've got? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want it. Yeah. Well, having just spent seven weeks in a very small space touring <laughs> Spain... I am, I mean, I've always been into decluttering anyway. I'm somebody who reads a postcard, you know, and takes the stamp off for charity and then burns or shreds the postcard. I don't keep anything. My husband gets a bill or a letter. He puts it back in the envelope and files it in the drawer. And so once a year, I have to force him to declutter all his stuff, not least because he can never find anything. I call his you know, his area, the black hole, because he knows he's got it, but he doesn't know where. Whereas I know I haven't got it because I don't keep anything. Yeah. Um, so after living in a small space, a couple of things we experienced was we had a cupboard full of DVDs because we decided not to take the TV. But in case there was any bad weather, we would take uh, DVDs and we could watch them on the laptop. Yeah. Well, when we were adopted on this campsite, we learned, as you do, like your train story, you learn what's going on yeah uh, no you don't want dvds you just upload the movies onto an f-stick so yeah. yes 
uh, on Wednesday, um, I went to the expat library and we gave all our DVDs away. They couldn't believe it, we had so many. Um, so now we've bought um, a, a massive hard drive in terms of capacity and um, we just passed that around and that's what we did in Spain. We just passed our hard drives around, put uploading all the movies. So I've got enough for next winter now. <laughs> so already? Yeah, already. So that also made me think about your library because you've been saying to me for several years now, stop buying books, put them on your Kindle. Yeah. I've always loved my books uh, because I like to write notes in them, etc. Yeah. But I am increasingly getting them on Kindle, which is yeah. perfect for motorhomes, obviously where space is a premium. And the other night, lying in bed, I said to Robert, um, because... You know, I'm thinking, how much more can I declutter the house now we're back? You know, we live in yep. a massive 16th century traditional French farmhouse and we filled the space. And when I talk about filling the space, here's an example. We wanted um, I'd move some things around and I had a, a nice little oak table. And I said, actually, the TV would look nice on that instead of the black TV cabinet, just for a change as much as anything. We moved it, and Robert said, well, it's created a space in the corner now. What should we fill it with? I said, we don't have to fill it with anything. <laughs> it can just be empty space. So lying in bed the other night, I said to Robert, do you know what? I think when we sell the house, because I'd like to sell it lock, stock, and barrel with as many contents as possible, we shouldn't buy a new bed. We just put the mattress on the floor. He said, oh, for God's sake, Dawn. <laughs> bed I said but we don't need a bed we need a mattress now why did we start sleeping in beds well it was a sign of wealth that people could elevate themselves off the dirty floor yeah and also um, also to get out of creepy crawlies and bugs and things exactly but yeah. you know it was a sign of status it was a sign yeah. of wealth that you yeah. didn't have to sleep on a dirty floor but actually why can't we sleep, just be like the uh, the eastern countries and have futons and sleep on the floor? Especially our bed, it's wooden slats. So it's not a far cry to be sleeping on our wooden floor. But he said, no, no. <laughs> but that's the way my mind is working, that we just don't need all this stuff. I would rather have the money, Barbara, for land. I want a much smaller house and more land so that I can have more nature experiences yeah. and travel more. Exactly. So, and I mean, is my definition of wealth at the moment, given that health is already there. Yeah. But you see, I think, I think that all of this has to be a definition of wealth. And that's why I think we, you know, when we're doing this wheel of life, we're talking to people about what segments they have in their wheel of life. I'm more and more thinking that we need to ask questions like how does wealth fit into that segment uh -huh. and maybe by just asking questions like that and maybe getting people to think about wealth in a different manner capacity people will stop being driven to get more money mm. and and to buy more things I mean I'm I'm sitting here um, and a lot of the stuff I, a lot of material stuff that I own has a history, has a story to it, has come from somewhere. Mm. And something that I still have to deal with, but I haven't, I haven't had the want or the will to actually address it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, I inherited, um, 
a tea service. It's a tr it's it's a complete twelve piece tea service. Mm. It's wonderful because the gold sovereign was melted to put the gold rings around the edge of the plates. Uh -huh. Some of the plates have been repaired in the old fashioned way with the staples on the back. Um, and it's fabulous. And I've got the whole history of, of where it came from the family. It's, it was created and manufactured specifically for my great, great grandparents marriage. Uh -huh. It was given to them by the family, you know, when they got married and it's been kept in the family. Mm -hmm. And my mother, bless her, is one of these lovely people. You'd love her, Dawn. She declutters, drop of a hat. And part of that comes from the fact we lived in a third world country, so it was easy to declutter into a charity. Mm -hmm. um, and she keeps saying to me, what are you going to do with it? And it's like, well, it was left to me, and it's got a few caveats attached to it because that's gone with it since it was created. Mm. I have to be a bit careful about how I get rid of it, so to speak. Mm. And it has a financial value. But you know what the bigger value is? Is the fact that this has re remained in the family for so long. Yes. And it's been passed down and passed down and passed down. And it was my dad's cousin I inherited it from. And her parents used it. It was used every day. Mm-hmm. She used it every day until she was probably 65, 66, and then decided she wanted something that wasn't quite so heavy, a little bit more practical, and, and went out and bought, um, you know, something new. Wow. So it's not that long ago that it stopped being used. Yes. And, of course, I look at it today, and I don't have the heart to use it because it's so beautiful and because it has this incredible hundred and year history yeah and you know these are the things that we keep and these are the questions we actually now have to start asking ourselves who would benefit from having that and mm. um, I look at my family and I know one of my nieces would love it but she would never use it she'd be like me it would be that family wealth being retained but and it has the but attached to it do we need to keep that level of wealth mm -hmm. yeah i mean i don't know what sort of um drama would happen you know around <laughs> you using it if, if richard broke a plate or, <laughs> exactly. or any of that sort of thing so that is a whole different sort of stress and I, I can't really relate to that story, Barbara, because you know I'm great at decluttering. Well, it's because my parents are great at decluttering. Yeah. Because I was a horse's child, we moved around a lot. So I would come home from boarding school, and my bedroom, which was in one house, was now in another house, and half my stuff was missing because they had deemed I'd grown out of it. Um, so I'd be sobbing my heart out that my favorite dolly or book had gone to, and my parents would say, but it's gone to another child who, who will appreciate and love it and you don't need it anymore. And I, I never got to make those choices. Um, and I suppose, uh, that is, a, an experience in both our families of learnt behavior towards exactly. to things. Things have never really had that much uh, value or, or sentimental value having said that yesterday I thought about my nan because I was doing the ironing and 
um, I had been sorting out the sheets and there, is, there are one or two things that I have kept that have absolutely no value and that is when I was a little well I, when I was a baby in a cot uh, my nan had these sheets that were folded up and when I was a child sleeping on a camp bed I had the same sheets and she gave them to me when I stopped staying with her and Christopher my son had them when he went to boarding school and yesterday I put patches on the thin bit so I, put, I, I ironed Winnie the Pooh patches because these are the old-fashioned stripy oh yes yeah. I cannot find replacements anywhere I've ordered several and they're thin and they're pathetic um, they're nothing like these real brushed cotton sheets but they had one or two thin patches so I ironed the patches on and I thought this is the most valuable thing I own yeah and it's My not sheets. And and it's, it's not a financial value no it's that family emotional value yeah and you know we don't we don't recognize sometimes that wealth because that mm because we've lost the community and a lot of us have moved away from our families for, for a variety of different reasons. Mm. A lot of kids go to university today, you know, they go to university in a different town and they end up finding a job in that town and staying there. So they're mm. not with the families anymore. Mm. Families aren't there. The communities have gone. Mm. So when you have these little things, mm. they have such a, an emotional wealth attached to them. Yes. Yeah. And we have to recognize it because, you know, if I was to say to you, Dawn, that has to get decluttered. Yeah. That would break your heart. Yeah, I would make clothes out of those sheets rather than throw them away. <laughs> yeah, but, you, but and, you know, this is, where, this is where we don't recognize the wealth we have because the emotion and the memories that are tied to, for you, those sheets, for me, this tea set, Mm. You know, um, I have a, a teapot and, and hot water jug and milk and sugar jug from my, my gran. You know, these things have, a, have a, an emotional value. Yeah. It's interesting, though, how things, um, events change our attitude to these things. I mean, I remember reading about Susan Jeffers who wrote Do the, uh, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Yeah. When she made her, you know, when the book became a multi-million pound um, success, her and her husband decided they were going to treat themselves to a multi-million pound type lifestyle and yeah. all their stuff uh, from their house into storage. And they, they moved into a two-bed um, I don't know how much of this is myth and how much is true, but supposedly they moved into a, a small flat and put all their stuff in storage and they leased this flat for six months while they were looking for their dream home. Mm. And they, they, they basically never moved out of that flat yeah. because they realized they, they put all this stuff in storage. They didn't need any of it. Mm. So why did they need a bigger home? I think that's a beautiful story. Uh, for other people, it's the really tragic event of a blood or a fire where they've yeah. lost everything that makes them take stock and once they're over the shock and the trauma of having lost things I hear people say actually it's very liberating to start again and not buy everything back they don't need all that stuff I, I remember the first time I went to Australia to see my brother and his his wife and, and two very young daughters that they were at the time 
and there were fires in the forest area which was literally one road away from their house yeah. and one of his friends was in the fire brigade and um, came round and we were sitting there chatting and, and the smoke suddenly billowed up and he said oh have you sorted the house out and of course my brother and sister-in-law looked at him and said what do you mean he said what do you value mm. end of question Mm. And, and Rob said, what do you mean? And he said, where are your passports? Where are your citizenship papers? Where are your... And Rob said, well, you know, some are in a drawer. Some are... He said, get them together. Mm. So we spent the rest of that holiday with them. Well, I spent with my sister-in-law. And we went through every room in the house. And what was, what was the value? Mm. And some of it was an emotional value and an emotional tie, you know, like, like you and I have been talking about. Um, things she'd inherited from her gran, things that, that had come from, you know, different members of the family that she, she valued. And, of course, then there were the, the logical papers. And then we came to this huge box of photo albums. And she's sitting there going, but this is when, you know, Rob and I got together and this is when the girls were born and I can't lose these memories. And I said, but you'll always hold memories in your heart. She said, no, I like flipping through them. Mm. So we found the negatives and we spent days going through the negatives and checking we had the negatives for every photograph. And we put the negatives into a safe box because mm. you could get the photos reprinted. Yes. My ex-husband then came in one day, he and my brother had been out, and he came in and he said, I've got you a negative scanner. Right. Which meant from this box of negatives, we could scan them in and put them on an F-stick. Mm-hmm. You know, it was something smaller. Yeah, we're getting smaller and smaller. And the interesting thing was, by the time we'd done this exercise, and it took us two and a half, three weeks, and, and we're talking four adults working practically non-stop at this right mm. we actually got to the point where everything that they held of value or of wealth could go in the boot of a car yeah and i think your exercise there marries beautifully with that readers uh, that, that listeners uh, question about how can i marry the thought of being spiritual with having or earning money yeah um you know, for you to 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 give a client uh, or a listener that exercise to go through the house and appraise everything and get it into the smallest domination possible in the event that A, they want to up sticks and move and just take a backpack with them or there's a fire or whatever. Yeah. I think that's a really good exercise. I think it is. And I mean, it was, it was an interesting exercise we went through. And... Um, we actually did another exercise with it, which I think is equally as important because yeah. it comes back to the thought of being spiritual and earning money. Yeah. Uh, it also comes back to this idea of moving jobs to earn more money. Yeah. And, and how do you take the money away? Mm-hmm. One of the things that we're not clear about, Dawn, none of, sorry, not none of us, very few of us are clear about, yeah. is how much money do we need? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying how much money do we want, I'm saying how much money do we need? I'm using the word need very carefully. Mm-hmm. We need to pay the mortgage. We need to pay the rent. We need to pay the electricity bill. We need to pay the rates, the water rates, the, the gas bill, the heating, the food. 
-hmm. When it comes to food, do we need do we need to buy everything we buy? Mm. Probably not. Some of that's going to be the luxuries, the nice to haves, the wants. Mm -hmm. Once you get absolutely clear about the money you need. And you put, in my world, you put a spiritual band around the acceptability that to live today we need this money. Mm -hmm. Being spiritual and earning money doesn't become a problem. Mm. Then the want to keep upgrading to a new house, to a new car, to a new this, to a new that, to get more money as part of the job. Mm becomes less important when you do that other exercise. What in this place do I need to keep? Not yeah. do I want to keep, do I need to keep? Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not saying your grand sheets have to go. They are a need. Mm. Because we have to have those things that tie us to the other emotional wealth we have. And I'm still using them. So they have a... Uh, you know, it's it's not like the story of the woman who kept her, uh, you know, the, again, it's a story. But, um, you know, when this man came to bury his wife and he had to get her outfit, he then found this box with, you know, uh, Mark Best underwear and he hadn't seen it. Yeah. And I just thought how sad that one day his wife was going to, you know, surprise him with wearing her best underwear that actually she'd saved it for best and when is best surely best yes. is now um yes. so she's buried so she never actually had the benefit of wearing her best underwear and robert has often said to me you know i really appreciate it when you make me a sandwich it's always laid out beautifully a tray a crystal glass to drink from a nice plate it's it's beautiful I, I no longer save my best stuff for a best occasion because we if we're living in the moment then surely what we're doing right now is our best moment or it could be but so, you know I'm, I'm thinking that there's a nice exercise we could leave everybody with yeah and it comes from something you said I think it's worthwhile everybody works out what money they need mm -hmm. because you get a clarity on your financial wealth mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. then it's worthwhile everybody going through two areas going through their house and working out if they were to live in a reasonable size camper van mm -hmm. what would they take with them yes what do they need to be able to live in a reasonable sized camper van. And obviously I'm talking about a person or a couple, I'm not talking about a huge family. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's slightly different. But if you ask yourself that question, and I know Dawn that you and Robert have asked that question and you're going through that process of what do we need in the camper van? Yeah. Because I know at some point you're gonna go and live in it for a while. Yeah. Um, but the other side of it is, is if I've got something that has a emotional attachment to it, mm. what value does it have to me in wealth? Mm. Now, for me, you know, you use those sheets. I don't use this tea service. Mm. But the emotional tie back to my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, you know, all the way down the chain is huge. Yeah. Because I didn't grow up with that 
family environment around me. I grew up in a different environment. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge wealth attached to that for me. Mm. Those are the sort of things that we need to keep. But maybe you need to give yourself permission to start using it. Or maybe I need to give myself permission, which is something a friend in Madeira suggested, to give it to somebody who will put it on display with the ownership clarified. Mm. So other people can benefit from it, mm -hmm. but I can still have that wealth, emotional wealth attachment to it. And, you know, having left something as part of your legacy for others to enjoy is a beautiful thing. Exactly. So, you know, there's a lot of things around it. But I think if people take this exercise away, they work out their financial needs. Mm -hmm. um, and then they work out their material needs. Mm. And then they work out how wealthy they are in each segment of their life. Mm. So the big question is, what is your definition of wealth? Yeah. And that probably won't become clear until you've done this exercise. I think that's true. Mm. I think that's true. And I think it's I think it's well worth doing it because the other quote that I like, that I have to be honest, you found Dawn. Mm. is your fortune is not something to find but mm. something to unfold yeah and you know again, what a lovely way to bring it full circle exactly i was going to say again fortune doesn't mean money yeah okay yeah so let's unfold everybody's fortunes mm -hmm. so thank you eric butterworth for that quote because i think it does bring it full circle yeah well done so we hope you've enjoyed this show and we hope you've enjoyed our stimulating conversation about wealth. And please keep sending your questions in because we do like them and they do help us understand what sort of things you enjoy listening to. Yeah. And our next show, which again is the towards the end of May on a Saturday, is talking about getting physically fit. Mm -hmm. And Dawn is this expert at this. I know that from knowing her as well as I do. And it's just in time to, you know, open our skin up, ready to topping up that essential natural vitamin over the summer. Now we're talking about the Northern Hemisphere here. But, you know, getting physically fit and being able to get that natural vitamin D3 over the winter for the Southern Hemisphere people is equally as important. Yeah, it doesn't need to be a sunny day to get it. it no, it doesn't. It doesn't, and it, it doesn't mean that you actually have to have your all your skin showing. No, just your eyes, you know, which obviously photosynthesize it to your thyroid is absolutely crucial. So we can all benefit regardless of the time of year. Absolutely. So we have to remember that health is taken for granted by most people until often they don't have it. And remember, we talked about spending your wealth to, to get back your health. So mm -hmm. let's now put health, uh, sorry, put wealth into health. Mm -hmm. and tune in to learn how to protect your most valuable asset your health mm -hmm. when we talk and present um at the end of may great so thank you dawn thank you barbara and we look forward to talking to you again soon bye